the best of man-made religion, philosophy, and institutions share a common goal. To live as well as we can for as long as we can, delaying the unavoidable sting of death as long as possible. What Christ did for us was to take death head on. By overcoming death's sting, he built a path for us to follow that worldly wisdom thinks foolish. Godly wisdom reveals that path. It's a path that teaches us to lose to find, to go last to be first, to serve to be great, and to live, excuse me, to die to live. The gospel goes to Athens. How many things in your life are done on a regular basis, a day-to-day basis, in order to put off or protect us from death? You don't usually think of it in those terms. That's kind of a stark way of thinking of things. Not a very pleasant way. But simple actions like put on your seatbelt when you get in your car. Locking doors. Um, Watching where you're walking when you're in town. Uh, Watching where you're at. There's, There's little things that we do that are responsible and and just just plain smart to do because we want to make sure we don't put ourselves in some form of harm's way. And of course we do that. That's human nature. Self-preservation is important. I think about that often when um, when I'm driving and and I see so many travelers and um, with my, my daughter's family down in, in Lancaster, with my grandkids, I want to go see them as I did yesterday. And uh, I was talking with, with the Hilliards beforehand about traveling to Lancaster because their, their son's in the same county, and so they get down there quite a bit. And um, traveling to Lancaster can be an adventure, especially on the weekend. There's just way too many people living in Pennsylvania. I, I, um, but as we pass all of these cars, it just occurs to me that accidents, you, you'd think there'd be more of them. Thankfully, there's not. But you pass hundreds, thousands of cars, and sometimes going very quickly, and sometimes I'm going quicker than I want to. But we're all obeying the rules of the road. Why? Because we love the law? Well, maybe, but more, more likely we love our lives. We love our families. We, we want to preserve our life so we know that this is a dangerous machine that I hold in my hands and control with this wheel and the pedals at my feet. And so we want to put death off as long as we can, and we have all these things in our lives every day to do so. And yet, the message of the cross sends us a message that is almost counterintuitive on the surface to that message. It's not a message that says go and be foolish about you know, not caring for yourself, not being careful, but it does say in the matters of the heart, there's things that we need to die to. There are things that perhaps we even need to suffer to learn. There, there's a lot that needs to go on in our lives <clears throat> to fully embrace and, and more deeply understand what God in Christ has called us into. 
Paul's going into a city that was known for its philosophy, wisdom, at least worldly wisdom. Now understand, when he went there and he saw all of these statues, while they were very much into um, talking about Socrates and Plato and their thoughts and writings, and you have the Epicureans and the Stoics and this, all this stuff that went was part of, of Greek thought, Greek thinking, Greek, you know, which to this day is very interesting and very fascinating, and I won't pretend to be an expert on it at any stretch. But even among that group, what you didn't have in this city, for the most part, was atheists. In fact, the ancient world and atheists was almost non-existent. There were some. So this wasn't a group that was, like today, people that um, are kind of, let me put it this way, too much into their head, thinking that everything is about reasoning and thinking, and you know that's what matters most. And have most of people in that category are, have given up on religion, given up on God, just like religion is, is, is unnecessary. And, and there are a lot more atheists, at least in our culture, than there was in the ancient world. But back then, they weren't there. So I say that to say, what does Paul encounter when he walks into this city of thinkers and debaters? He sees statues everywhere, and he's distressed by it. And why he was distressed was actually quite an interesting point that some of the scholars I read uh, on this chapter talked about. Like, well, what was he expecting? Well, of course there's going to be statues there. And, but m- perhaps he was thinking that because this city was known for their thought that maybe they put away some of these silly and more ridiculous gods at least, but there were the gods there. Uh, there was, as was in the other cities, there were temples for emperor worship. There were temples for all the other Greek gods. So they, they were there as well, in addition to and alongside all these debates about deep thought and, and you know, Plato and Socrates, etc. So he's distressed that, boy, they haven't even given up on this. Now, Paul was an intelligent man. Paul was a well-educated man. And the fact that he could enter into a discussion with these people and not be laughed out of the room or completely ignored or pushed away from square one tells us a lot about him. Because if you weren't ready to, um, to speak their language, okay, and I don't mean the Greek, I mean to talk the way they talk. Maybe you've been in settings where people you don't feel comfortable because they have a way of speaking about, um, about life and, and about education and about whatever else that, that maybe you're not ready to talk in, in, at that level and you feel, might even feel intimidated by it. Um, but Paul didn't feel that at all. Paul was ready and prepared to, to speak with these people. And he does something brilliant that... He, he sees among all the statues, there's one that doesn't have a name to it. It's not connected to one of the many gods of that era, a, to, the, to the unknown god. And he uses that 
as a connecting point. And that's a good lesson if we want to have a conversation with someone that is so far removed from the way we think, from the way we see God, who may not believe in God at all. So, so what, what is your place of agreement with that individual or that group of people that you could have a conversation that you both agree with? Oh, here's a statue to the unknown God. You know, I'm going to talk about that unknown God. I'm going to tell you that this unknown God is known, and here's how. And he goes on to, to describe that. We'll get to that in detail in a moment. But I just want you to understand what, what he's getting himself into here. And, and they wanted to hear more from him, and yet there's almost a hint in the, in the passage that this wasn't just a friendly conversation, and they were, their curiosity was perked by, by his philosophy and, and his story. It was almost like there was something on the line because it tells us there how he was... Um, <clears throat> He was, you know, excuse me, they were concerned that he was bringing foreign ideas, foreign gods into them. What is this all about? This is a strange teaching to us. So that, that question wasn't necessarily brought out of curiosity and interest. It was almost like, what are you trying to pull here, buddy? Okay, you seem to be able to talk well and speak clearly and eloquently, but, you know, we're not necessarily going to buy this, so... They bring him into this big meeting, the Ariagapas. I can't say it well either, Kim, so don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, might have been this place, something that looked like it. And um, he's going to have this discussion, but now there seems to be a lot on the line. It's a pressure coming against him. So what I want to mo focus mostly on today is beginning at verse 24 down to 31. So that's Acts 17, 24 to 31. And this is what Paul says now in reaction to this group who did let him speak, but had a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot of skepticism toward the message of the gospel that he was bringing there. And what we see in what Paul says here is that godly wisdom reveals several things. Godly wisdom reveals that, first of all, God doesn't need anything. He gave us everything. Verse 23 and, excuse me, verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. What a bold statement to make. Among this group of people that believed in all of these gods throughout the city and all of their ideas, they you know, that somehow all this connected together and this Athens up on this hill of all places in the world, they were the smartest. They were the ones who, who knew about the gods best. And, and, and their philosophy was superior to everyone else's. There was certainly a lot of arrogance in that city, no doubt about it. But Paul wasn't put off by that. But even in that setting, he says... All these statues, all these temples. That's not it, fellas. This isn't what, 
what God is about. This, in fact, there isn't gods. There is God singular, just one. And that's the bold statement he's making there. The God who made the world and everything. So if you, if you study at all about Greek gods and the stories behind them, a lot goes on up in the cosmos, in the heavens, and they battle it out for you know, the various positioning and power plays. And then the earth sort of ends up being this, uh, this ping pong ball you know, kicked around between the gods. And, and you know, we're just these little humans, and there's all these gods working this stuff out. But Paul's jumping way beyond that and says, you know what? There's just one, and he made everything. And that changes things if you're going to think like that. Godly wisdom reveals that, you know what? God doesn't need us to build a building because if he had made the universe, why would the God of the universe care whether or not there was this beautiful temple built on the earth somewhere made out of the stone and the wood or the gold and the silver that he made? So what? It's already his. What difference would it make to your gods or the God that you created this, you you built this? In fact, you didn't create it, you just used what God created. And what difference does it make to to, to, to God if you're going to serve him? Can you give him something that he needs? Is, Is the... The existence of God going to be improved because you and I went to church today? Is the difference, uh, is the the existence of, of God and the life of God going to be better because I prayed to him? Because I read this book? Because I'm being nice to my neighbor? I mean... And, and, of course, all of that is, is, is helpful and important to, to come to worship and to have fellowship and, and, and to show kindness to others and those things that Jesus demonstrated to us. But if, if the foundation of doing it is somewhere in my heart thinking that God needs me to do this, God's going to be impressed by this. Well, no, that's not it either. And that's the message he's, he's getting across to them. God doesn't need anything. He gave us everything. And then the second one, God, God's godly wisdom reveals that the one God began life with the one man. Verse 26 <clears throat> From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he's using again a great connecting tool with the per, the people he's trying to reach. So he takes one of their sayings, one of their um, philosophers, and quotes them, and says, "Look, they're they're speaking about the same thing. They they're, they're, their picture of it." Is, is, is incomplete or insufficient, but still they have 
they have kind of a piece of the truth right here when they say this, and that's what he focuses on. And he points it back to the one God who, who made everything, who began everything. And he did that from one man. Now that's important because as Paul writes about in Romans, you have the one man, Adam, and then eventually comes the one man, Jesus. And I think it's the fifth chapter of Romans where Paul develops that whole, that whole argument, that whole teaching about how it, it began with one man who was the man of the earth, and then here comes the man of the heaven who was also kind of the man of the earth, and that's what brought everything together in terms of God reaching all people. But it began with one God who made one universe. It began with one man. It began with one Jesus Christ, one Savior, one Son of God that came. And that is going to, if I were sitting there that day and I were one of those Greek people and was, was worshiping all these Greek gods, to my mind, that would be confusing. It doesn't make a whole lot more sense to think that Rather than some big battle of all these battling gods, and I have to figure out where my place is and who to take sides with or who to pray for for this and who to pray for for that, that, that would be a very stressful way to, to worship. No matter how heartfelt I was about it and how genuine I believed it, it, it at, at some level it doesn't make sense. But here comes someone talking about a oneness to everything. It came from one place, one source, one God. He started with one man and he sent one Savior to, to bring us together in him. And I love the statement here he gives about how God is not far from any of you. It doesn't depend on going to the right temple, the right time, the right place, saying the right prayer in the right way. It doesn't depend on keeping the... the the right list of rules and the right fashion. It depends on the one God who's given you the one Savior who is available to all of us and for all of us. So Paul, before these very intelligent and well-educated men, was giving them this big picture of reality that many of them never thought of before or just dusted off without thinking about it or laughed it off. But, and he, he's, he's bringing it home to them, really. And um, they're not all going to believe it. In fact, very few of them did. But this was important that he is, again, bringing this message beyond the Jewish world into the Gentile Greek world, even into their, the center of their education, the center of their philosophy in Athens and claiming the one God over all of these statue gods in, in Athens. Godly wisdom reveals that we didn't design God, God designed us. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So again, he's pointing back to the statues. He's, he's drawing the attention of that. Do you, do you really think this is what it's about? Do you think your, your depiction of what you believe your gods to be and to be like 
is, is somehow sufficient. The one true God, you really can't make a statue about because God doesn't, God doesn't have an, an image that you can create or construct or make out of gold or silver or wood or anything else. And, and that's going way back to Abraham, or excuse me, Moses, when God called him to go to Egypt, and you remember that story, the burning bush? He was very hesitant. He said, Lord, when they ask me the name of this God who's going to you know, release these people, who's demanding their release, what name shall I say? And God said, I don't have a name. I am who I am. Because a word cannot contain all that God is. Now, we have G-O-D, and we use that, but we also recognize that it is insufficient. There is 70-plus names for Jesus, titles in Scripture, because all of them are true, but not any one of them is, is sufficient to describe all that God is because God is indescribable. And yet, in our, in our attempts and our desire to know God, we use descriptors and words that help us connect, but any one of them is by itself insufficient. So a physical structure of any kind, a temple or a statue or an idol, is insufficient to truly reflect the nature of the one and only God and creator of the universe. Even words that we construct are insufficient to fully contain all that God is. So on the one hand, you have this God that you can't really concoct in terms of an image, that you can't really speak of in terms of one word or put it even to a sentence or a book, and yet we still do so because it gives us enough understanding to have a relationship with him. And that came from his side. And that's why he sent Jesus to us. Because now the God of the universe, as it says in Philippians 2, took on flesh. Now the God of the universe is one of us and and understands what it is to live in this world in a human body with with human emotions and, and, and with pain and suffering and joys and good days and bad days. This Jesus gets that. And that's how the great and awesome and indescribable God of the universe is now accessible not far from any of us then and now today. So we didn't design God. He designed us and He designed us to be in relationship with Him. And that's the mystery of God's love that that the creator of this world would even care that we're here, would even care that that you and I have a life and have pain and have, have joys and sorrows in our lives. And yet he does. And he sent Jesus to make us help us to believe that. And then lastly, the godly wisdom reveals that the way to change your view of God is to change your view of death. Verse 30. <clears throat> In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice 
by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now it goes on to say that when he got to that, that's where they shut down. That's where they stopped listening. That's where they weren't going to you know, take it anymore. There's something about that, that truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again that has always been and remains to this day the key obstacle that every person needs to overcome. Every person needs to, to grapple with and accept and to believe and, and at a deeper level to recognize the, the, the meaning contained in the death and resurrection of the one that God sent. Because it means that, that death has been dealt with. Change your view of death is, is simply saying that our prayers to all of the gods that people have done throughout the world and throughout history and certainly here in Athens when Paul said this were largely, just like I said a few moments ago, one more step in pushing death away. Because if I pray to the gods, they're going to keep me safe. If I pray to the gods, they're going to keep my belly full. If I pray to the gods, my family's going to be okay. If I pray to the gods, um, I'm going to be successful. And wherever else it is, to keep us living and to keep life as, as comfortable and perhaps even pleasurable and, and, and prosperous as possible. Why else would people pray to some strange thing? Because they of themselves believe that they can't control it on their own or can't manage it on their own or can't find success on their own. So they've got to find something bigger and stronger than them. And these gods have always been humanity's attempts to, to in different ways, achieve that or hope to achieve that. And the beauty of the gospel, the truth of the gospel is that you don't have to go to all of that trouble. You simply go to the source, the one and only source. And he has taught us that the way to life isn't to continually find ways to push off death as long as you possibly can. The way to life is to follow the one who died already and rose again. And learn to die to yourself. Learn to give up, to die to those things that you're, you're clinging to so hardly. And, and, and today, perhaps we don't have statues all around Stroudsburg that various people you know, bow down to. And yet we have many idols that are things in our lives that be can become idols. Technology is certainly an idol. Money is an idol. And, and both, all of the, both of those we use doesn't mean you are an idol worshiper, but they can become an idol to you. So many uh, desires of the heart uh, can become idols in many ways. People in our lives can become idols. And what God wants us to do through Christ is to die to that, to, to take that, that attitude, that way of thinking, that mentality in our heart, take that to the cross and have that crucified. So if a person is, is my life, is my idol, I don't want that person to die, but I want my, the way I think of him or her to die. So then I can learn to truly love them rather than 
depend on them or over-depend on them or enjoy them depending on me. I now depend on God, so I die to that. And any other idol in our hearts and minds, we need to die to. So we have to, to think about death as a positive in the sense of dying to everything that is less than the one true God. All those ways, all those attitudes, all of those uh, philosophies that we embrace consciously and subconsciously can be taken to the foot of the cross and died to. So what can rise again in us is true life, the way our creator, our designer intended it to be. And, and we've, we, we taste that as we give up of ourselves and give to others. We taste that as we, as we um, carry out acts of love for one another. We'll never get it, we'll never understand or see or know God by just doing it by ourselves, by, by trying to, to, to make him happy because of how I am. We come to him saying, here am I, just like Moses said, such as I am, and I want you to use my life and I offer it to you, Lord, for your Service, Not that you need my service, but I give it to you as an act of love. Isn't it great when your kids are little and they, they start doing things, they, they learn to obey, hopefully, and, and sometimes they obey kind of grudgingly. They obey because they're going to get in trouble if they don't. You know, they don't pick up the room, they don't take out the trash or wherever their, their task or chore might be. But isn't it great in the moments where they do it not because they're supposed to, they have to, but they recognize that this is part of our family and I want to do this because I love my family, I love my parents, and it's good for all of us that I do this. And they start acting in that way and things are un, un, unprompted from you as a parent. And that's the way God sees us. He doesn't want us to come to him, you know, oh God, have I done enough? Is, is, this, is this okay? No, just come to him. Lord, I love you. And I want to continue to show love. And that's what truly does honor him. So the best of man-made religion, philosophy, and institutions share a common goal to live as well as we can for as long as we can, delaying the unavoidable sting of death as long as possible. What Christ did for us was take death head on by overcoming death's sting. He built a path for us to follow that worldly wisdom thinks foolish. Godly wisdom reveals that path. It's a path that teaches us to lose, to find, to, last, to go last to be first, to serve to be great, and to die to live. Father, may these truths from your word be embedded in our hearts. May they take seed and take root and grow to express your ways and your love in this world. Amen.